Riding a bicycle. So elemental and universal. Yet cycling means many different things to many different people. You're listening to the Bone Shaker Cast, Episode 5, A Design for Life. The Design Museum in London has an ongoing exhibition called Cycle Revolution. In the show, they've distinguished four main tribes of cyclists. And as Bone Shaker's a partner for the show, we thought we'd profile three unique individuals who cross the boundaries of urban riding, thrill-seeking and high performance. First up, we dip into the underbelly of America's motor cities. Richie T went from east to west and became part of a countercultural cycling movement that he took higher and higher. I moved to LA in 2006 from New York, and it was kind of a blind deal. I went in my little two-seater car, drove across the country with my bicycle on the back, I had no idea how involved I'd get with bikes. I had a bike and I loved riding it and getting silly with it, but I didn't realize that there was a whole scene. It was like paradise when I found that in Los Angeles. So a bike shop said, do you know about the Midnight Riders? And I said, no. They said, well, here's the website, go check it out. They do group rides, it's a lot of fun. And so I went online and at that time there was only like one ride a month, basically. And they would have hundreds of people come out to this ride. Um, but there was a few others and one was called Wolfpack and it was going to be their first ride. And I was like, yes, I'm going to that one. And so I showed up on my Trek full suspension mountain bike platform pedals. You know, I know nothing and they're all looking at me. There's like, you know, maybe 20 people there. Like, you know, this is a fast ride, right? And I was like, I'm fast, (laughs) you know, just completely naive. Uh, and we rode and it was, you know, about 30 miles. And it was intense, the hardest thing I had like ever done at that point, but I didn't get dropped. And that was what started everything with the bike scene for me. Doing it at nighttime is kind of like rebellious. It's like, it's like how you can run out and do some mischief without actually causing any harm. You know, you feel like you're getting away or, you know, being free. And like that particular ride was a, a fast paced one. So you get your hustle on and, and in Los Angeles, it's hot. So at nighttime, it's cooler. It makes more sense to do that kind of thing at night, you know? Uh, but there's also that cool factor. You know, you're at midnight, 1 a.m. You're still riding, you know, the streets are yours. And then there was the whole party side you know, where you'd have these huge rides and people would get together and everyone just met you with open arms. It was like, it didn't matter what color you were, what kind of bike you rode, you showed up, that meant you're one of us, you know? And uh, that was life-changing, I think. I wish that happened everywhere. The whole party scene captured Richie's imagination. The expression, the costumes, the freedom, the diversity and the community. Around this time, he came across Alex Schwartz, one of only a couple of tall bike builders in LA. And tall bikes struck a chord. What better way to stand out from the crowd than to go upwards? I was like, well, I gotta build one taller. You know, I can't be like everybody else. And so I built the triple, and that was my first tall bike, and I loved it. It freaked people out. Everyone was like, what is that? Or like, they have questions. Next thing you know, we were making friends. They'd say, bring your bike, come ride with us. And our community started growing just from them being excited, you know, by looking at our bikes. It makes people smile, you know? And that's, that's like the best feeling, I think. Like when you see someone happy or smiling, you kind of smile yourself. And so we started Los Angelopes, 
That was our freak bike name, group name. We were just a freak bike ride. All freaks welcome. <laughs> and uh, we just got, you know, everyone wore costumes. We like called out like birds or cows or whatever in the street. You know, we just made animal sounds and, and people were getting more creative, putting grills on their bikes, kegs, <laughs> you know, whatever. So we would all go out to the pier and we'd flip it open and we'd cook, you know, it was like, we have everything we need, you know, it's all on wheels. We had that ride, Crank Mob, which was a party ride. We would start at, you know, 10 p.m. and we grew really fast, up to, you know, over a thousand people every month. And everyone's in costumes and it's the wildest, you know, party ride you've ever been on. Every stop has, like, bands or live DJs playing. Then we go to the next one, there's games, people are painting, like, it's wild. It's so much fun. The Mardi Gras of bike riding. That was the one thing you looked forward to every month. You know, people were preparing, gearing up. And so with that, that's when the tall bike got taller. And so Stupid Tool was built, sitting Richie 15 feet off the ground, riding way above the crowd. On this particular day, they closed down Venice Boulevard for, I think, eight miles. And so we, uh, we decided to do our, our ride through Ciclavia and go to the beach. And that's when I had the 15-footer out with some close calls. But uh, everything turned out okay, you know. <laughs> the close calls were uh, an, an overpass that I was going under, and uh, I leaned down far enough, and the, the concrete on the ceiling was only about a couple inches, because I was looking at it like that as we went by, and I made it out just by the skin of my knuckles. Everyone roared, because everyone was like, oh my god, what's, what's about to happen to this guy? He's going to fall. He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Oh shit, he did it. Yeah! <laughs> it was like... My heart was beating so fast. And so obviously Stupid Tool has to turn eventually into Stupid Tooler. And the sound you can hear behind me is from Richie's perspective on top of a... Okay, you guys can let go. 20 foot tall bike. We'll do this. All those distant voices you can hear are from very small people down below. Okay. And from this perspective, you can really visualize how horrible it would be if it toppled. But of course it doesn't, and Richie T rides a 20-foot bike 200 meters twice the required distance to break the guinness world record all right i'm gonna make a loop around i feel pretty good wow made it made it success guinness world record certificate the tallest rideable bicycle is stupid taller which measures 20 feet two and a half inches and was built by richie trimble and measured in los angeles on December 26th, 2013. Officially amazing. Where'd you go from here? More parties, more rides, higher and higher still. All of this seems to be born out of the city of LA. And for Richie, the bike scene seemed to be changing. Or maybe it's just that a person with boundless energy and ideas needs constant change and growth. I was on a cross-country feature that we were doing and the moment that we went through Detroit there was something magnetic like 
I got tingles and like these three questions just popped up in my head and it was, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And if you died now, would you be okay? Like, would you feel like you've done your job here? Whatever that is. And I was like, whoa, is this a midlife crisis? This is cool. Like, okay, this place, something's going on here. And we came back, we did the shoot and I felt the same way. And so this past June, I went there for five weeks. And within that first week, I was like, this is home. I have to come here. And so packed up and I moved out to Detroit. Still figuring out how to make money there. I have no idea, but I know I need to be there. As I'm learning more, I think that I'm attracted to a clean canvas, basically. You can do what you would like there. You know, you have an idea, you want to make something and you want to make it positive or beautiful. There's a lot of people there feeling the same thing. And so it doesn't happen often that you see a city come back, you know, and become something. And I think that that's what's happening. So whether or not I'm really involved in that, just to be there and watch it happen, I think is going to be an amazing story. You know, like I can't wait to do a similar type thing to Crank Mom in Detroit because they don't know what a party ride is yet, in my opinion. Like wait till they see the sound system bikes. Damn. <laughs> Since its inception, the bicycle has had an intimate and sometimes troubled relationship with our cities. A machine at one with the urban landscape, the perfect way to explore the sprawl, but often at odds with the planners responsible for designing and managing a city's growth, where a car and commerce are king. There are examples of harmony, of course, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Utrecht, proof that reimagining a city with the bicycle as a central component is not a pipe dream. And of course it works in reverse too. The design of a city shaping those cyclists who navigate its streets. The traffic, the noise, the obstructions, all part of the playground, not part of the problem. Lucas Brunel is one such example. Achieving global renown through his visceral helmet camera films are the white knuckle ride that is the alley cat race. Well, renowned and a little notoriety. You know, when I was young, I had a lot of anger. I mean. I used to destroy things all the time. I used to have temper tantrums and I used to, you know, throw chairs and destroy desks and, you know, windows and smash things all the time. I'm legendary at every school that I've been to in my youth for being the person who certainly did more damage and destruction than anybody because of my anger. You know, police would chase me, I would resist, I would assault, you know, and all that. Uh, I went through all that. Well, all that anger now is replaced with a drive. I've channeled the anger. It's a sense of purpose now. And the sense of purpose is to show people what a lifestyle is like on a bicycle, the ultimate expression of freedom. As an adolescent, I think that riding the bike saved my life. started out as I was having fun on Martha's Vineyard where we would ride to get away from the adults and to skip school and it was the most awesome thing because there were other kids doing other things they were playing games or you know they were outdoors in the woods whatever but those days you didn't have internet so you know everything was outdoors but um, we had the best of it because we were on the bikes and we were able to get away from it all. I won dozens of races when I was a junior, and I even won some races when I became a senior. The racing circuit was a lot of fun, and 
amazing times traveling all over the world and going to these criteriums and these closed circuit races. But reality is I wanted something more. I wanted something more risky, something different, maybe more dangerous and um, to meet a different type of people because most of the people that you meet on those circuits are pretty similar. You know, they're not anything like messengers or the people that you run into um, doing what we're doing. You know, my riding career um, kind of took an abrupt end when uh, Ryder and I had an altercation when we were in Killington, Vermont, and I took him out, crashed going over 40 miles per hour down a hill, and, you know, they suspended my license, and, you know, it was never the same after that. I came back, and I raced, and it was great, but, you know, that kind of marked the real change once I had that huge fight with that rider in Killington at a stage race and you know both of us finished the race bloodied he had crashed you know but he had broke my nose and so you know it was one of those things where I said well I you know kind of tired of this and I want to see what else is out there because that's the thing about cycling is that there's so much else out there. Enter the alley cap the controversial daredevil races that course through the fast moving cities of the world you know, the Alley Cats were amazing. I couldn't believe how much fun they were and how many variables were involved and what a challenge it was. You could be the fittest rider, the fastest rider, you could be pro, and you're not going to win an Alley Cat. The Alley Cat has more variables than any other race. I mean, what other race do you go to and you're passing a million people in cars who you don't know? An Alley Cat race is probably the only cyclist that welcome the presence of all those cars three things you need to win an alley cat you know you of course need the speed um, but then you can be as fast as you want if you don't know where you're going then you're just not going to do very well you're going to miss the checkpoints and so um, you have to know navigation and so in addition to speed and navigation and this is probably the most important you've got to have really good street skills because that's kind of a matter of life or death that's why I love alley cat races it's the absolute So this is the sound from Lucas's helmet camera. New York City. I mean, <laughs> that's a place where you know I filmed my first big race back in 2001 you know the drag race where um i scored it to guns and roses welcome to the jungle and it immediately jumped up to over a million views crashed my server at the time there's no youtube or anything around and so that was kind of the start of something that i had no idea how big it would really get uh another amazing city with very fast riders is Mexico City. Uh, I mean, Mexico is a place that has the variety more than any city that I've ever ridden in. I've been to over 60 countries and many different cities within those countries. And Mexico City is very unique because it's got roads that are like roller coasters and then roads that cut off terminate into the woods and then they shortcut to a highway through a path and then the highway ends. 
and there's a bridge out and there's no warning except for some branches on the ground and across it's like the wild west new york city is not you know it's uh certainly very car centric but mexico city kind of takes the cake on that quito in ecuador that's an amazing city you know it's got that roller coaster style streets like mexico does they're on the frontier though i was there just two years ago before cycling had caught on the variety of cities in a riding is is just amazing Craig, my friend, and I, uh, back in 2001, had spent all night working on the helmet cam, and we used Tupperware and epoxies and glues and all this other stuff, and we finally attached camera to my helmet, and then we went out riding with it. It was the most unbelievable experience, because I had captured our ride on camera, and, you know, it's very interesting, I, you know, tell you that, because, you know, as we speak, I'm working in a collaboration with a drone company that has honing drones. They go 55 miles per hour and the drone can hone and follow us through not just open areas, but through building corridors and other very interesting spaces. So, you know, I'm eager to see how that goes. Didn't drink, uh, didn't smoke. I, I, you know, I certainly still don't and never have. And that's something that I make very apparent to the youth that approach me in different cities, especially in foreign cities, less developed countries, is that, you know, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do any of that stuff. I mean, certainly I've got my own issues, you know, confrontations with the law and things like that that I deal with. But, um, you know, I, I don't so much have a problem with authority so much as I do when those actions impede on the freedom of others, you know, and... It certainly is something that's happened now, especially in the United States. I mean, this country has been beaten into submission by the laws and the rules that we have. When, when you have this lifestyle and you ride the way that we do through traffic, you're going to have issues. When you go to another city, you know, you, whether it's London or um, Bangladesh, Budapest, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. The customs are going to be different in different places. You know, if you go to Guatemala City, it really doesn't matter how you're Mexico City, doesn't matter how you ride. But, you know, what happens is <clears throat> I go to Hong Kong, for example. I really wanted to ride through the Harbor Tunnel. You know, I did that. And when I rode through the Harbor Tunnel to Kowloon, I was met at the end of the tunnel with six police officers. They said nobody's ever ridden through the tunnel before. I don't know that I would travel the way that I do without filming. You know, there's a saying, if it wasn't on film, it didn't happen. Filming is very important to me. Documenting, recording, you know, where we've been in a certain way, you know, in my style, is very important. I've had millions of downloads on YouTube and millions of fans, hundreds of thousands of people uh, that have met in physically, you know, over the years, touring cities. And... I know that that makes a difference. I know that those numbers mean that I'm influencing people to ride bicycle and to live on their own accord through the bicycle, the ultimate expression of freedom. I never really ridden a bike until I decided to cycle the world and then I kind of jumped on one and started 
um, learning how to learning from scratch really because I'd only ever kind of peddled around as a child um, in a courtyard somewhere I think it was in the Philippines that I remember but I, I had for, forgotten completely how to cycle. Juliana Burring, who also found liberation on two wheels. When she talks about a courtyard here, it's not necessarily the image of a courtyard that first comes to mind. It was a very um, closed, small world. I grew up behind high walls and with barbed wire on top and never really saw much of the world outside of our compounds. I was born and raised in an extremist group, or I suppose you could call it a cult. It was called the Children of God. My parents joined as hippies, and I was born into it. And that meant that I grew up in mostly third world countries in Asia and Africa, and traveled a lot during my childhood. Well, I was actually kind of shipped around. I, I was property of the group, so my parents gave me over to the group when I was three. And, uh, and since from that point on, I was just sort of sent around to different training camps for children within the group. We were trained to become Jesus's little soldiers, and, and well, they were apocalyptic cults, so they thought the world was going to end, and so education was not necessary, and you know, there was a, a lot of abuses and lack of human rights for us children. Eventually, Juliana left when she was 23. The world hadn't ended, it had just opened right up. I guess after leaving as a young adult, I had this uh, insatiable desire to see and do and experience as much as I could. I uh, was wanting just to, to experience everything I didn't get to growing up as a kid. And as you'd imagine, it wasn't too easy at the start. I didn't exist anywhere. I wasn't registered anywhere. Uh, I had to try and get a job, write a CV, uh, get myself educated. So you know, it was like having to learn everything from scratch. Um, that was that was tough then, so the next, following years were quite difficult. Of course, it did happen, but the Round the World ride was actually triggered by a tragic event. I, I set off to cycle the world. I was already well integrated into society. My first book had already come out. And, um, and I was actually set off because uh, the man that I loved at the time had been killed on a mission in the Congo. And I was in a very dark place mentally, and I needed an escape. I needed a way to... Um, I, just, I just felt like I had lost the last thing that I, that I truly loved. And Just to give you a very, very brief backstory here, and hopefully not playing down the magnitude of this or brushing over it too quickly, but the guy she's referring to was called Hendry, and they met at the time she was leaving the Children of God in Uganda. She'd come to England to get away and they lost contact, but then five years later they rekindled their relationship. Juliana had bought a ticket and was ready to visit him when he was killed on the mission she's referring to, which was a rafting expedition down the Congo. Hendry was actually grabbed from his canoe by a crocodile, dragged under, and his body was never recovered. I kind of decided to cycle the world as a, as a way to save myself. Um, I needed to, to refine the, the passion and, and the joy of life again, and it was a kind of a desperate act, and I, I left not really caring if I came back or not. Um, and the whole process for me was a journey of, of, of refinding myself and my place in the world and, and just the world at large, and the experience changed me completely, and by the time I came back, I had a different view of life and what I wanted to do with mine, and 
um, a different view of everything, the world of how I saw it and how I saw my place in it. So I came back with a record, but it wouldn't have mattered if I hadn't because that wasn't the ultimate aim and it was just a bonus, I guess. But it was a good bonus, of course, as Juliana realised important things about herself. Her ability to endure, her ability to push herself and a newfound love of the open road that would compel her to continue. I'm an extremist, so I don't do anything by have. So if I do something, I do it to the, to the maximum possible. I think taking my body to, to the breaking point was started to be more of a thing for me after the world cycle when I started racing and, um, and knowing I was probably doing harm to myself but carrying on anyway because I was curious to see how much further the mind could take the body even when the body should collapse. So it was more of an experiment, self-experiment. I always experiment on myself, probably to my own detriment. <laughs> She's now raced in all the monuments of this outlier of cycling competition, the Trans Am and the Transcontinental, excelling in these unsupported slogs that test many facets of mind, body and soul. But herein lies the attraction, what keeps most of us away from such extreme activity is in many ways the essence of what draws Juliana to these races and why she's so good at them. It's very solitary, isn't it? Distance yeah, it is. I think a lot of people break or don't do those kind of distances because they can't handle the solitude. Uh, but I'm the opposite. I, I look forward to it. I actually really love the solitude. I I like being in that, in that space and in my head and just... I think I'm okay with myself. I think if you can't be alone with yourself, you maybe have many demons that you haven't yet faced. You have the moments where it's just painful and it's misery and you don't see anything redeeming about it, but you pass that point and you get a bit of a rush. You get a bit of a high about, wow, I passed that, you know, what else can I do and how, how much further can I go and how much farther can I take myself and my body and my mind? And you start to realize you're capable of enduring so much more and going so much further than you thought you could and I think you feel stronger for it and you take those lessons on the bike into every day as well. But there's also something in this ultra distance, ultra endurance, solitary cycling that is definitely a little at odds with connecting to a big wide world on some level. Your priorities just are completely different than people's everyday lives and it's actually maybe the integration is more difficult to to come back into the, the just the everyday things that you know you worry about living normal life whereas on the bike it's just eat sleep and ride and everything is much more simplified so priorities are totally different so you just feel like the world comes crashing back on you and you have to kind of give yourself room to 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 breathe for the first few months and and re-enter slowly you can't just jump into the cold water <laughs> But of course, at the heart of these races, it's the very thing that draws many of us to the bike. That thing that makes us decide to take a left turn for once when we usually go right. I've only ever really raced unsupported because I love the adventure of it. So for me, it's more about going on an adventure into the unknown, not knowing where you're going to sleep that night and, you know, which bush you're going to crash under and, uh, you know, when you're going to find your next meal. And I just love that aspect of it. Like, just going into the unknown and I think that you know maybe it scares some people but for me that's the thrill the, the excitement of it 
when I was setting off to cycle the world, the main thing that I was, the main feedback I kept getting from everyone was, oh, it's so dangerous, and aren't you afraid, and you can't go alone, you're a woman. And I was like, well, okay, there, mis- there must be a reason why no woman has, you know, tried to do this record alone, so why not find out if it's true or if it's just uh, the myth and we've just got to break the myth. So I honestly can say that apart from India, I never felt once threatened or in danger. And in fact, it was the opposite. People were so generous, so accommodating, curious. They wanted to know what I was doing. People were chasing me down the road, handing me money. You know, it was, uh, or paying for my meals along the way. When I did the Trans Am race, I almost didn't pay for a single meal because the Americans all along the route knew that we were coming. They saw me and they would pay my meal without, without even telling me. And I would go to pay and they were like, no, someone's already paid for you. Or they would hand me money and go, here, have, a, have yourself for your next lunch. So I, I almost didn't pay for a single meal. I've never felt in danger. And, and I think that our perception of the world and how dangerous it is is greatly distorted by what we see in the media and we only see the bad. But by and large, humans are genuinely good and generous uh, and open-minded. There's a very small percentage that aren't. Juliana has to be one of the greatest advocates for cycling. With every race, she raises money for the foundation she set up at Safe Passage, which helps to raise awareness of the many children who are kept under the radar, born into groups such as the one she grew up in. I believe cycling is... Uh, a form of meditation. It, it puts you right into the present and simplifies everything and just focuses your mind into that road and just being on that road and just carrying on and pedaling. And I think it's, I would recommend cycling to anyone who's having a bad day. <laughs> You've been listening to the Bone Shaker cast. I'm Gary Fool. You can find out who the music is by in the show notes for this episode and head over to the Boneshaker cast pages at boneshakermag.com to see more on the wonderful people featured in this show. Also, the Design Museum exhibition is on until the end of June. I have one request at the end here, and so if I can ask you to go into iTunes and rate and review us, as it will massively help to send us up the rankings and reach more listeners. It should literally take you a couple of minutes and would be much appreciated. Many thanks and goodbye for now.